Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, dear listeners, to the Bad Scientist Podcast. <laughs> what are we talking about today, Marie? That was my Mitch McConnell impersonation. <laughs> oh, good night, everybody. You've been great. Today, we wrap up talking about King Tutankhamen and uh, talking about a very Halloween-esque subject. About time we rolled around to it. The Mummy's Curse. The Mummy's Curse! That was me playing the organ, yep. not being Mitch McConnell. Yep. Um, and now Jake rolls the tape. <laughs> now Jake rolls the tape. <laughs> All right. Um, this is my favorite part. Like, uh, this is where I feel like Howard Carter, like all of the sort of the factual learning about archaeology, that's great. Like Egyptology, that's really good. I love that stuff, right? That's interesting and it's real. Here's where I think we really, this is where we start to hit our wheelhouse, right? And saying, okay, so now how did all of those events get warped into something spooky. No, yeah, archaeology is, all that studying archaeology and all that other crap, that's all fine. We're finally at ghosts. Okay, (laughs) so last episode we talked a little bit about how how they finally found the tomb, Mm -hmm. how excited they all were, um, and also some of the ideas about, like, conserving the items themselves and how they had to get over to it. What's interesting, though, so as soon as the tomb... As soon as the tomb was found and pictures of the tombs themselves and and the objects there started getting out there, the the world went crazy with Egyptomania is what they called it. It's this. Yeah. And so we have an interesting quote here. So this is from Paul Collins, the curator for the ancient Near East at the uh, Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. It says, quote, Egyptomania was fed by a perfect storm of technology. The moment when radio, telegram, mass circulation newspapers and moving film came together so everyone could have a bit of tut, end quote. It's really interesting. There are um, if you look back at like the fashion of the 1920s, you'll see things like snakes and lotus flowers and um, all this other stuff. And Mm -hmm. especially the work of. especially the work of the of Burton, the photographer, became really important. So we talked a little bit about him at the end of last episode, um, but this is Harry Burton. He shows up to take these photos, and his photos start becoming, like, they get out there in the United States, and people just, they love them. Right. They love them. They thought they were yeah. fascinating. And so all of that how foreign, how exotic. Right. So right? all of that starts to get in there. Now, interestingly, though, so another aspect of kind of King Tut's mystique and mystery here is the fact that he's a boy king. 
Yes. And not only is he a boy king, but he's a boy king with a bunch of injuries, you know, so that, you know, his ankle was or his leg was all messed up and you know, his head was like caved in, <laughs> like all this other stuff, whatever. Um, clearly, yeah, there was clearly his cause of death was not uh, old age. <laughs> he didn't die peaceful in his sleep. No, absolutely not. Right. And so what's interesting is this this kind of Egyptomania or this mm-hmm. love of King Tut. It spoke to people at the time, I think, in a little bit of, bit of a deeper way, Marie, as you said here, mm-hmm. um, because he was not old. He was a young man who was injured, leading his country, whatever. This is a time period here we're talking about where people are coming back from World War One. Yep. World War One was not good on the body. No. So no. people come back. They are. They are damaged. They are injured. They are um, bandaged. Bandaged. They are. They yeah. are in in pain. And so mm-hmm. this idea of um, this idea of a mummy of a thing mm-hmm. of a, of an injured dead who would come back for revenge on the country or on the people who disturbed them or who took over mm-hmm. their country. Mm-hmm. It's a very compelling story. When it's it's perfect, like he he's right in saying it is the perfect storm, right? Because you've got the roaring 20s. So there's this consumerism, right? There's this hunger for stuff. Like we love gold, right? The idea of the shiny gold, the um, conspicuous consumerism became a term that was actually coined during that time phrase. And like the idea of like uh, mass consumering, mass consumers, production, getting sort of the artifacts, right? So you could have your own little Egyptian cat or you could have your own gold necklace or all of this stuff started to hit the market and it became sort of, again, like this this, this hunger for things mm-hmm. and coinciding with the idea of the boy king and post-war, post-war England, post-war Mer- uh, Europe was this idea of um, that there there doesn't have to be shame in being injured, right? That there's not, it's not exactly a glorification of it, but it's, it's, um, it's a normalization of it. And even a mass media, um, sort of representation of, uh, of, of something that is in some ways glorified, right? Like King Tut and the mummy of King Tut and the power of that sort of helped heal some of the psychological wounds, or at least, kind of gave a different outlet to grieving the injured or the shame of coming home um, hurt, which is a perceived, which isn't the truth in any way, but is like a perceived national um, sort of psychic ennui. You know what I mean? Like if you Absolutely. are, if you lose and your, your, your young men are coming home bandaged and, and uh, you know, vets now that are, that are, um, that you have to take care of this is sort of almost this kind of weird sci-fi reaction to it in this glorification of this young man. But to your point too, the idea of it, that, um, that he has a, he has a right to a vengeance, that there's an anger behind it, I think is especially fascinating. Cause that's like, it's not like everything is okay, but it's like now he has a right to, uh, actually, um, to be to take revenge on those who did this wrong to him. Absolutely. 
And what's interesting actually is that all of this kind of media craze will culminate mm-hmm. in 1932 with the release of The Mummy, uh, the horror film by Universal. And interestingly, actually, Marie, you dug this up. The first journalist to see the face of the pharaoh was supposedly John Balderston, who would write the script for The Mummy. Which is, I love that. Like that to me, full circle. Super like, interesting. Here's the guy who, 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 is, who witnesses a historic event and then who's like, you know what? I see a script. I feel script. Yeah. 25 words or less. Freaking crazy. The curse comes back. Yeah. Crazy. Anyways, so, okay. So the other part of this, the other part of the kind of mummy craze that happens at this time is the curse. Now, everyone who's listening to this has probably heard of the mummy's curse or the curse, you know. The idea is that you you enter this tomb that's been sealed and you open it up and um by exotic people long ago. Right. And then and then see the light of day again. Yeah, and, and then they're giving they're, color. They're evil their evil spirit or whatever, the god that's protecting them or you know, all this other junk, whatever, comes back and then um kills you. You know, so or it hurts you or whatever. So it's not just it's not just but it's like the created um, pastiche of that culture comes back to kill you. You're it's a plague of it's the plague of uh, the Beatles or it's like, you know, it's it's not just like, oh, you know, and then you fall off a bridge or you're trampled by horses. There's something sort of there's going to be something notable about your death that can be directly correlated to that to that curse yeah right so it's this whole it's sort of like this exotic uh heightened um again sort of colonial right like sort of you know taking advantage of of uh of a culture that you just yanked or tried to take everything out of their out of their country yeah so what's interesting is This all starts actually with a novelist, Marie Corelli, um, warning, saying, you know, saying the most dire punishments follow any rash intruder into a sealed tomb. And Mm -hmm. this comes out a couple of weeks before the death of Lord Carnarvon, finally. Yes. So this guy has been ill like the entire time we've been talking about him. Right. Yeah. Um, he's not been doing chain great. smoking, right? Chain yeah. Smoking. The right. Entire chain, time as well. chain smoking, like just killing it. And a, a couple months after the tomb is open, he dies. So essentially, he just kind of comes down with an illness, is transferred to, transferred to Cairo, and then he'll die. Um, they're not they're not sure what caused his death, but supposedly it comes from an infection due to an insect bite. Supposedly. Yes. Now, the legend says that when he died, there was a power failure in Cairo. And his son back in England will report that his favorite dog howled and then suddenly dropped dead. Now, one one wonders, considering how much time he spends in Egypt, how favorite could this dog have possibly been? You know, that's question one. Favorite hound. Yeah, like it's dare you, sir. That seems crazy. But anyways, dare you, sir? Question the legitimacy and timing. Not to mention, like, like what time of day was it? (laughs) Like, was it at night? Because I mean, I mean, it's like, what is the time difference? The the exact time. Now, the other thing too that's interesting. The other part of this myth that'll get built in is this idea that um, when Tut is finally unwrapped, then. 
1925, it, it, it has a wound on the cheek in the same place that Carnarvon had this insect bite. Bum, bum, bum. Right. So, so that's so this is this idea here that this this mummy opening it up will will kill you. And so this yes. this myth gets even built further and further because so 1929 now, um, 11 people connected to the discovery of the tomb will have died from unnatural, quote unquote, unnatural causes. Early and, unnatural. and, and early. Yes. Right. So two of Carnarvon's relatives, his secretary, um, Richard Bethel and Bethel's father, Lord Westerbury. Westerbury will kill himself by jumping from a building and he left a note that is pretty kind of scary. He said, quote, I really cannot stand any more horrors and hardly see what good I am going to do here. So I am making my exit End quote. Pretty definitive too. pretty, pretty definitive. I'd say so. I'd say so. Now, Every time another death happened that was like related to Carnarvon, right? So, you know, Carnarvon's maid's cat dies. Um, <laughs> his, you know, another guy named Carner, Carner Bon dies. So not Carnarvon, but Carner Bon. Maybe the, the curse is bad, uh, bad, mm-hmm. I don't know, bad English or whatever. Um, oh, I mean, it wasn't hieroglyphics. It could have, you know, it's, true. it's a translation. It's true. It's a translation error. Um, every time someone new dies, the press is like, the mummy's curse strikes again. And so by 1935, they're, they're saying King Todd has 21 victims, which puts him right up there with like, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the worst serial killers in history. <laughs> but what I love is again, it's like, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like that, that even that much time afterwards, they are still attributing the curse. They're still getting it. Like, to me, that's that is that is sort of a commentary on our culture as well, and our the fact that we are uh, you know like going kind of into the discussion that we were having earlier that we have this sort of hunger for this stuff as well, right? Because they're not going to be putting it out about the mummy's curse if people were like, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem right, or not having an interest in it. Well. Because, you know, we love it. I mean, I'm not saying that we're exempt from it. As soon as I was like, oh, Todd, heck yeah, we're going to talk about the curse. Yeah, well, it's, it, 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 I think also it's like this idea that, I, I don't know. I wonder, do you think, Marie, they had like leftover guilt? Like, I, I wonder if they were like, man, this is kind of, I don't know, kind of weird. Because like, because because that they took stuff out of the guilt that they, uh, yeah, I think. Well, like, you, like we yeah. just did, we did a whole series on. The history of surgery mm-hmm. where they were like, no, you can't. No, you're not supposed to go into tombs. And you know what I mean? Like the 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 English mm-hmm. in this time period mm-hmm. had huge, huge. You know, we're talking like up to the 1880s and even to the modern day. We're still really weird about dead bodies. <laughs> I think I think it's an interesting clash. I think on one side they are they're they're the colonialists and they are explorers and they feel that they have a right to go in and excavate and take, right? Like if they have the knowledge and if they have the ability, they're going to go, they're going to persevere and they're going to find this and they have the right to do so. But then I would venture and this is sort of an interesting again this is all hypothesis, uh subjecture that subliminally that does take effect, that you were going into a tomb, that you were going into um, not just a historical figure, but like the body of the historical figure and the 
the uh, I think that that starts that's got to have some effect, right? That's just got to, because you don't get to escape that because that's really the subject of what you're doing. And I mean, you can kind of obfuscate it and try and, you know, and, and put a lot of different, a lot of different things around it, but you're still coming down to, it's a grave. Mm-hmm. It's a grave and you're going to, you are taking the body and you're, uh, you're going to actually also physically, um, physically dismantle that body. So I think that there was some, some guilt that worked its way into sort of, you know, the educational, informational, um, you know, on top, but then down deep, I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. I mean, that's, and that's a good point. So it's like, how does that, how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in the curse, but you will be, you know, but this isn't right, that there's something about it that's not right, which is mm. kind of true. It's like, if you think about archaeology, it's like, and especially if you think about graves, like those weren't supposed to be disturbed, right? That's why they effing buried them that far down and blocked them off. It was like that was supposed to be the final resting place. You're not supposed to go back into that. And it's like, again, like I think that you don't, you should have that type of reaction to um, that type of excavation. My two cents. It's a little ghoulish. Yes. Check. Check that box. It's a little <laughs> ghoulish. Now, all right. So eventually, you know, this this idea of a curse, right? So mm-hmm. one thing that's interesting with ideas like this, and especially with ideas of things like, say, even the Bermuda Triangle or whatever. And we, we <laughs> talked about this actually really early on with the story of the missing men of Boston, right? There was this idea that there was a serial killer in Boston shoving young men into the to the waterways or there was a curse or whatever. Oh, um, the smiley face killer, right? That was like one theory of it, but like it turned out it was oh, just yeah, a yeah. bunch of, you put a bunch Girls. of college kids together near a bunch of water, get them really <laughs> drunk, they'll fall in. You know what I mean? Like not to be too glib about it, they're tragedies, but it's kind of what happens here. Um, Boston. But if you look at like the statistics here, it's mm-hmm. it's really interesting. There's not a lot to this idea of the curse, right? Uh, so Herbert sure. Winlock, uh, the director of the Metropolitan Museum of New York, um, at one point anyways, made a calculation about the effectiveness of the curse. And so he looked and said, OK, there were 22 people present when the tomb was opened in 1922. Only six of them will die by 1934. Of the 22 present at the opening of the sarcophagus in 24, only two of them will die by 1934. And of the 10 people that were there when the mummy was unwrapped in 25, all of them survived until at least 1934. So that seems like pretty average figures for people who Boo, are win like, lock. like your job is if your job is traveling to exotic locations and looking for tombs, you're in a pretty dangerous line of work. You know, it's like, I don't know, like saying, you know, lion tamers have a curse on them because they always get eaten by lions. Like, well, no, no shit. <laughs> That's their job. You know, like it's a hazard of the job. Is that uh, is it it was it came down to the director of the Metropolitan Museum Art to have to make this argument, which is kind of funny because it's like you can only imagine that this guy has got more important things to deal with than trying to run statistics. But he was probably like, all right, that's it. I'm done reading. All right. You know what? I'm done. I'm done. We're not marketing the curse. Everybody quit making that suggestion to me, you know, because his marketing department was probably like, oh, my God, we could we could totally market the curse. Herbert, think of it. And he's like, no. I'm just presupposing, but you know, like 
no, we're just showing the mummy and here's like the actual figures. Cause you very rarely having worked with, um, some art directors in and curators, they very rarely get around to statistics. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> hey, oh, that's well, but no, but I mean, it's like that's not normally their go-to. Is they're like, okay, we're gonna have to figure out the stats on this. Somebody get me a, somebody get me the calculator and the the Bowen figure or what that, that you know whatever the the classical stats are. You know, it's like they don't do that. They're right. busy being curators we're and directors. Art. So the- of like the biggest museum in one of the biggest museums in the world. Who is that? Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's all good, Marie. Mm. Not a fan of curators. Anyways, I so- am, no, I'm a total. <laughs> okay, like, look, you can badmouth, you can badmouth the arts all you want. I'm a huge fan of curators. I used to work with curators. Like, I'm a huge fan of them. They just are not very. They're not you know, statistically inclined. That's what I'm getting at. All right, I understand. So, okay. Um, further, you can send me your emails, uh, people. That's <laughs> at, I don't at anti-curator.net. Um, Anti-hate-me-a-curator.com. So, uh, the final kind of nail in the coffin here was uh, in 2002. So say, 2002, uh, researchers at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, Mark Nelson did a study again where he looked at. Um, he looked at the cut, the, the, the curse, rather, of King Tut. And so what he looked at was he looked at 44 Westerners who were in Egypt at the time the tomb was discovered. Twenty five of them are linked to the curse in some way, or at least they would have been linked to the curse because they were there at the breaking of the sacred seals, at the opening of the sarcophagus, the opening of the coffins, unwrapping of the mummy, all the cursey kind of stuff you'd expect. Right. The other folks were in Egypt but not exposed to the curse, quote-unquote. The average age of death of the exposed group was 70 years. It's quite a curse. <laughs> You're cursed to live to an average lifespan. The other, um, and, the, and the average survival rate for those not exposed, the average kind of age was to 75. Mm-hmm. So, so not exactly a cr- like not it not really a curse. Mm-hmm. You know, not really too much. Um, and on top of that, too, as we start digging in more and more, mm-hmm. we find that there are a lot of other holes in this, right? So, like the idea that when Carnarvon dies, all the lights in all lights in Cairo go out. This is Cairo in 1923. Power failures were super duper common. Like, you know, the power failures were common everywhere in 1923. It is, it, yeah. yeah, it's not exactly like a crazy kind of thing necessarily. Right. Um, yes. And, and on top of that, the final kind of nail in the coffin of the curse, Carter, the guy who found the tomb, was the first to open it, was the was there mm-hmm. for everything. Oh, he and must whatever. have he, they, he must have like the mummy must have reached out from his anwar one dark and stormy night and strangled him immediately after, right? Unless the curse was to live to sixty four and die of natural causes at home. Oh. No, there. So he lived to an uh, to a to a fine ripe old age for the time, and then died naturally. I okay. mean, considering his job was again like super dangerous and involved lots of travel, and like you know, think about the dangers in 1923 of traveling to a place like Egypt. Um, ah, all, oh, you know, all regularly, right. So then what, right? What killed him? So then, what killed Carnivan? Huh? Because he died. 
Yeah, you can't argue that, can you? We're going to get into that after the break. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so, Lord Carnarvon, right? Mm-hmm. He dies. Like you said, cannot, <laughs> dis- yeah. cannot dispute, dispute the fact that, that he right. dies. He died. All right. Uh-huh. At the time of his death, his... His uh, cause of death is reported as pneumonia supervening on facial uh, arepsipalis, or in other words, it's a streptococcal infection of the skin and the underlying soft tissue. Ooh, which does sound really like. In other words, he got pneumonia from a skin infection. That's what they said, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it eventually leads to like multi-organ failure and death, and it's not it's not great. Here's the thing: we talked. At the beginning of the series, that after his car accident where he was going like 25, you know, in a, in a two mile per hour zone at the time. Very fast. Yes. He was a daredevil. No, he's going crazy. Uh-huh. He was prone to infections his entire life. They initially sent him to Egypt because they were like, the warm climate will make your clammy skin a little bit redder. You might be better in Egypt than you are in England where it rains all the damn time, dude. So... He was always um, he was always sick. He was like it would have been weirder if he wasn't sick ever again after he opened the tomb. Yeah, he was pretty much a near invalid. Yeah, really. I mean, yeah. when it comes down to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is like, you know, uh, I don't even know, man. This is like you're, you're watching, you know, there must be a curse on TLC because all of those 7000 pound people die from heart attacks. It's ridiculous. So anyways, um he always so he had a very weak constitution, probably not a very good immune system. And so, frankly, him getting um, him essentially getting blood poisoning from an infected mosquito bite is not all that out of the question. Um, however, recent work makes people think that maybe his death was due to exposure to toxic mold. Namely, um, aspergillus, which are a group of fungi that produce a mycotoxin, which when allowed to germinate, um, can kill you essentially, right? So this is a type of toxin that, um, this is a type of toxin really that it it exists on food, right? It's a fungal and toxin. Exactly. And so. Mold. Yeah. And so what's good (laughs) <laughs> it's not really good. But what's interesting is that this specifically exists on old food that exists in, say, tombs, right? As we talked about, when they opened up the tomb, um, there were a lot of there – were, there were things for the afterlife, right? So there were things like, you know, yeah. the pharaoh's favorite snack and um, animals and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff that would allow this mold to exist and germinate and just kind of, yeah. you know, all kinds of organic, organic material. Absolutely. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like a really good way of, of getting there. And so one particular strain of this, this mold is known as, um, it's known as Aspergillus Niger or black mold. 
right? And so we've all heard of black mold before. It's the kind of mold that if you have it in your house, you like get your house fixed, basically. You burn down um, the house. Yeah. Right. So yeah. um, this is from Dr. Ezidin Taha of Cairo University, looked at the health records of museum workers that were working at the time and found that a lot of them had been exposed to this black mold. Um, and so this causes things like fever, fatigue, rashes, um, and, and someone who's already immunocompromised can lead to other complications, of course, right? So right. he suggests, this, this Dr. Taha suggests that this fungus might exist in the tombs um, and might have been picked up by archaeologists as they enter. Right. Which makes perfect right. sense. Now, this now Aspergillus niger black mold is not the only kind of mold, though. So Dr. Nicola de Paolo, um, an Italian physician, found another possible fungus in the tombs, um, Aspergillus ochracus, which is uh, he found in different places across Egypt's archaeological sites. This one could have existed on artifacts from the tomb in particular. However, that type of fungus isn't normally um, in like a, like. Aspergillus niger with a healthy person can kill you, right? It's, it's, it's bad <laughs> enough that it can really mess you up. This other kind isn't as bad for you. It'll, it can still get you sick, but it's not normally toxic or it's not normally fatal. I should say. Man, I just love the idea that there was a curse and it's the mold, <laughs> right? It was, there was a curse. There was something living in there just waiting if you opened it up, that was going to, that was going to actually activate and, and could hurt you. I well, think that that's even more interesting because it's scientifically proven. So here, okay. Scientifically proven. Let's take a step back. Well, it's scientifically possible. It's possible. Well, interestingly, um, don't take the wind out of my sails. I'm, sorry. I'm having fun with this. I'm sorry. Right, keep going. No, no, no. no that's there's not, a, that's there's a really, a really funny quote actually we found from, uh-huh. um, uh, F. DeWolf Miller, a professor of epidemiology at the University of Hawaii, um, they they said, quote, given the sanitary conditions of the time in general and those within Egypt in particular, Lord Carnarvon would likely have been safer inside the tomb than outside the tomb. <laughs> so um, oh, and, and casting a little shade. God, not a f- not big up in Egypt. Um, casting up in Egypt. That's pretty good. What's funny. What's interesting about this actually mm-hmm. is I think the it's really like like if you think about even today with COVID, mm-hmm. think about how hard it is to do contact tracing on a single person. Yeah. In modern times, you know, yes. they're still like trying to track people who went to um like big, o- you know, yeah, like Sturgis, right? Or like or to rallies or whatever, like or to or to um Anything, right? Like there was a wedding in Maine where they're still tracking people from Mm -hmm. that. Like it's really hard to do contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. with like modern day where everyone is taking photos like hashtag COVID free, hashtag at the wedding. Right. Like back in the day, you know, trying to track um, infections due to mold spores in the 1920s or 1930s from the modern day, nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard mm-hmm. to make a definitive statement. However, we do know that there's exposure to these kind of toxins can create pneumonia in immunocompromised, in immunocompromised individuals, individuals. Yes. And 
um, Carnarvon would have probably come in contact with some kind of molds by going into the tomb, breathing in the the dank tomb air, right. uh, crawling around, touching all the stuff, whatever. You know, right. Um, right. there's even records of Carnarvon like crawling along the tomb's floor, like not not good, not good. So no, very. Uh, well, and if you think about especially now, like even thinking about PPE or whatever, it's like they didn't even really have much. I'm sure that they had some safety considerations, but it's not like they were wearing masks necessarily or wearing masks throughout. This is right? like, or that all the workers were wearing masks or something. Because if you think about it, if you go in, the mold has settled. There's no air, right? And all of a sudden, you you break it open and you begin to circulate air and walk around and touch things and step on organic material. All of those spores are then active and are now like almost in a whirlpool in that small space. It's well, like a perfect little vector hut. The other, it. the other thing is that we 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 are like only a couple of years at this point, so we're talking like 1920. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like the germ theory of disease is still being discussed in in the in like the high you know the highest levels of academia. So they didn't know at this point that things like you know mold spores or like they weren't thinking about those kind of epidemiological considerations. Yeah. So it's yeah. possible they were taking precautions, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like it's probably, they probably, you know, had an idea like they, like he did send the canary in, right. Cause they were like, okay, like that was rudimentary. Like, all right, let's see if, if there's poison, a, poison or dangerous but like not after i would assume not after it's been opened and they're in their you know they have a photographer in there for pete's sake setting up stuff moving stuff around yeah you know it's just and it's a closed space it's to me it makes yeah it's makes total sense so okay is there ultimately any reason to think that this actually happened so there's a curse no 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 that the the mold spores the mold spores right Ah, so so 1999 a German microbiologist, Gotthard Kramer from the University of Leipzig, looked at 40 different mummies and was able to identify several dangerous mold spores on each of them. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. on top of that, we have those other studies that found mold spores and everything else. They can survive in, you know, very harsh conditions, even dark, dry, relatively dry tombs. Um, and it's possible that when... The, when the tomb was opened, you had all of the air blowing out. It's very mm-hmm. possible that these people got essentially uh, a huge blast of mold spores. And then they died. Mm. Now, the problem with that is that um, Carnarvon would have had to have entered the tomb the day it was opened. Right? Mm. For that idea of the air blast to have hurt him to have occurred. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. that's not – we don't think that happened. Right. Carter talks about Carnarvon. He sends Carnarvon this info after they open it. And Carnarvon's like, oh, my God, I'm coming. I'm coming. And then it takes him a couple weeks. Right. So it's not clear if he actually entered the tomb then or not or how he would have gotten this exposure to mold. Um, However, it's it's still a possibility. Right. But at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with. He could have gotten this mold from anywhere, I guess is what I'm saying. 
right? He could have gotten sick from anything. He was already a sickly person. I he like, could have gotten an insect bite anywhere. Exactly. Is what you're saying. Exactly. Like I like the mold theory. I think it's cool, but probably not necessarily what killed Carnivon. Come on, man. I'm just saying. How about Marie? the curse? Can we? Can we? Can we? Are we? Are we honestly going to be saying that the the curse was not a not real? Because then that's just really like that doesn't leave me with the spooky feeling for Halloween. I don't, you know, uh, you and your scientific rationalization. I don't know. Well, you know, the thing, the thing about these curses or the thing about these stories always is it reminds me of, I really like old horror movies, like really cheesy horror movies. Love them. And there's one in particular that's like pretty gory and like it's pre-code. So it's pretty, it's pretty, not even pre-code. It's like. It's post, I guess, mo- motion picture code, but it's like not in the 1960s, 1950s, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. But it's basically this. It's like cobbled together from a couple of different films, I think. But it's this um, this evil scientist is creating zombies on an island out in like, you know, the tropics or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, what's it called? What is this movie? Oh, I don't even know. It's like okay. it's something stupid. It's like. What is it? The Island of Dr. Something Ro- sexual deviate. It's something crazy. It's insane, right? It's an insane movie. The Isle of Doctor Monroe. No, it's not the Isle of Doctor okay. Monroe, but it's an, it's like Just another thing like that. But anyways, okay. um, some rip off of that. Okay. But in that movie, like they go to a tomb and then they, it's booby trapped. Like it's all booby trapped, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, the idea of like it being booby trapped that presupposes this idea that like you're doing something wrong. You know, like you shouldn't be stealing these things then. If you think someone is trying to protect them, you shouldn't be trying to get them. You know, I don't know. I don't know, Marie. I see. I. And if you've seen the original Boris Karloff, the mummy, like I think that that is that's pre-code, pre-code horror. And it's really it's really good. I mean, it's just very, you know, it's classic and it's it's classic because it's very Boris Karloff is is a great actor in it. It's spooky. It's well shot. It's you know, it, it's cheesy now, but it's like it is sort of like it is. A, it's a, it's unsettling. And I think that's the other thing that's so interesting is it's like that just like Frankenstein, just like Dracula, the mummy perseveres. Right. I mean, it's already had two remakes, the most recent with Tom Cruise of which makes zero sense, but whatevs, that's cool. But I mean, it has this sort of lasting, um, this sort of lasting effect, right? It, it, it hasn't, you know, the Egyptology or the idea of the undead or the, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh coming back to revenge the opening of his tomb is something that is, that's even that we appreciate now or that we'd love to see now. So I think that that's if if nothing else, if we get nothing else from it, even if there's not a curse, you should you should check out, especially the the 1932 original horror. Absolutely. Hi, Marie. What's next for us? What's that's what's, what's next? Doppelgangers. I think we should get some since since it is closing up on on our favorite holiday. We have entered. We have entered the time. The nigh is close. 
Christopher. <laughs> um, I think we should. I think it's time for doppelgangers, which, <gasps> if I remember correctly, is especially unsettling to one Christopher Cogswell. I hate them so much. All right, we'll be back next week, listeners. Ah, 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 ah. Good night. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Don't you know that you're a grown up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.